there's there's two names for this phenomenon. Um, one is called the hierarchy of therapeutics, this therapeutic ladder that you talked about. Another is um, maybe a more common or colloquial term called the therapeutic order. That is to say the sequence of events that, that, a, that a doctor or a healthcare practitioner should approach a problem. I like to sometimes describe this as um, with a metaphor. And the metaphor is about the fly in the kitchen, right? So if a fly in, a, in your kitchen is a problem, if you see that as a problem, there's like a bunch of different potential solutions to that problem, right? Um, one is to open up the door or the window, right? And see if you can like let the fly out. And that's that's like a, that's a reasonably good solution. It, it, there's some risks to it. Maybe other flies would come in. Um, it might not be the easiest. You might have to like navigate the fly out, you know, out the door, um, but it's a pretty good solution in terms of it's like invasiveness, right? Um, it doesn't do a lot of damage to the fly or to the kitchen as it were, right? And then up from there, we could go up to like the, the rolled up newspaper that you whack it with or the fly swatter. And then we could go up from there to, um, to like raid or some other toxic chemical that you spray in the air to try to kill the fly with. Uh, and then, you know, if that, and none of those work, you could go up to, um, the flamethrower, right? Like blasting the fly with the flamethrower. And, and the idea here is this is a metaphor, right? Increasing levels of invasiveness, uh, of toxicity or of damage, right? The flamethrower will definitely get the job done, but it will do a lot of uh, collateral damage in the process, right? And so here we are in a healthcare system where we pull out the freaking flamethrower like right away, you know, many, many times. And that flamethrower can be a surgery. It can be a medication. It's just a higher order. It's not that the flamethrower, you know, the bigger level interventions, the big guns, so to speak, are inappropriate. It's just that they're inappropriate when they are used before these uh, safer, more gentle, more environmentally friendly options. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Welcome back to the podcast. Before we get into it with Dr. Josh Lovett, a naturopathic doctor who is a wealth of information on all things holistic medicine, but the thing I really liked about speaking with Dr. Lovett is that he is very much non-dogmatic in the way that he views health and the way that he views the healthcare system, which I think, as we've learned from the pandemic, is increasingly rarer and rarer, and so I was very happy to sit down and talk with him and get his perspective. Now, before we get into the podcast, please consider supporting the podcast in one of the following ways. You can support the show by buying me a coffee with the link below to keep me caffeinated and keep the podcast running. I'm a one-man team, so it'd be helpful to get any support that you could give. Second is through the show sponsors. The first one is Hugh Kitchen. They offer delicious dark chocolates made with all organic ingredients, unrefined coconut sugar, cocoa butter, and they offer a ton of different varieties such as gingerbread or cashew butter with raspberry, 
grass-fed milk chocolate, which is a new product, and even paleo grain-free crackers. Because you're a listener of this podcast, you can get 15% off Hue Kitchen products using the link in the description and entering the code J-O-R-G-E with all caps. You can find the link in the description. You can also check out Jigsaw Health Magnesium, which I love. I've been using it for several years now, and it is one of the best forms of magnesium that I've found. Why would you even want to take magnesium? What is it? Well, magnesium is an essential mineral that you need for a ton of different reactions in the body. One of them is involved in vitamin D metabolism, so it actually helps to convert the inactive form of vitamin D into the active form of vitamin D. So even if you're just taking 10,000 IUs of vitamin D every single day, it may not be doing the best job unless you're having enough magnesium in your diet or if you are actively supplementing. And the Jigsaw Health Magnesium is a great form because it doesn't lead to a destruction of your pants uh, running to the toilet. This is one of the forms that is slow release technology, which means that it's not going to cause those digestive disturbances, at least not as often. And so I really like it for that. It also has a version of it, which includes the B vitamins, which are cofactors for magnesium metabolism, especially things like vitamin B6 and methylfolate, along with magnesium can help synergistically improve things like uh, anxiety and sleep. So this whole combination is very synergistic. It's really a great product. They do have a clinical trial on it. And so you can get $10 off Jigsaw Health Magnesium by checking out the link in the description and using code LIVEDAMNWELL. Lastly, before we get into the podcast, I recently published my book titled What COVID-19 Taught Us About a Sick America. I'm very excited to revamp my book. It took a, it took a while to sort of finally wrap my mind around what I intended to do with this book. And really there were several things. First was that I was in a really of, of depression and poor health, um, having dealt with insomnia for most of my life or IBS for most of my life, um, anxiety for all of my life, and it finally did culminate in, in depression. Now, this isn't a sob story. There are people who've had it way worse than I have, but at that time, it was the beginning of COVID, and so all of that was sort of in the backdrop of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, which um, sort of exacerbated all of these underlying conditions that I that I was feeling. And so I, in order to get myself out of this hole, I needed to look outside of myself. I needed to challenge myself. I needed to stop looking at things in such a black or white manner. And that's what, that's how this book was born. My book discusses several things about the pandemic and, and what it revealed about ourselves. One, we're chronically sick. I mean, I experienced that myself. Number two, we are as divided as ever before. But my book goes far beyond just a discussion of these two things. I offer a practical guide to use what we learned from the pandemic to not only create a better life for ourselves and to self-heal in a methodical manner, but also to start healing the planet by healing ourselves, which is one of the concepts that one of my past guests Ante Strika wrote in his book as well, Primal Move. So I hope you check it out at least. The link will be in the description. Now let's get on with the episode with Dr. Josh Levitt.
All right. Today I have with me Dr. Josh Levitt, a naturopathic physician with a degree in physiology from UCLA, a doctorate in naturopathic medicine from Bastyr University, residency training in integrative medicine, over 10 years of precepting medical residents from the Yale School of Medicine, and over 20 years of direct clinical experience with thousands of patients. Dr. Levitt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. It's good to be here. It's always awkward hearing myself described in that in that way, but it's all true. I promise it's all true. <laughs> Why Why do you think that is? Because I, I sort of get that feeling when I listen to other podcasts where, you know, the guests are, are being introduced and they sort of like uh, kind of cringe a little. Yeah, it's always cringy, <laughs> right? Maybe it's like, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's the third person kind of effect or also, yeah. I don't know, I guess, you know, really, to be honest, it's, it's just... Um, I don't know. That's sort of like ego stroking stuff, you know, touting your sure. credentials and your resume. And um, this medicine is more about like passion than ego for me. And I think that's what the cringiness comes from. You know, it's it's just like hearing myself described in that way. It's always a little bit awkward, but hey, it's a necessary part of the game, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So before the interview, we actually talked about the first question I was I was going to ask anyway, which is very related to uh, where naturopathy, where alternative medicine actually fits into healthcare in general. Uh, so to kind of preface this question, I'm a big fan of Dr. Andrew Huberman, as is like 99% of the population at this point. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things he said really resonated with me in one of his interviews, which was that there seems to be this sort of levels of levels of care, levels of if somebody has some sort of issue, let's say it is depression that we start with the lifestyle changes first and see if that doesn't get better. If it doesn't, then let's move on to targeted supplements and herbs and uh, adaptogens maybe. And if that doesn't work, then finally, yeah, let's use the more aggressive prescription medications and, and things that are, um, you know, much more, much stronger than you would get from the lifestyle and the supplement side of things. But um, in my experience, it seems to be very common for uh, pharmaceuticals to be prescribed before you deeply look into lifestyle. Um, and, and so I was, I was wondering what your thoughts were on sort of why did these first two levels sort of, um, are sort of neglected, um, and, and why did naturopathy and, and something and, 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 uh, therapies like naturopathy become labeled as sort of alternative medicine rather than like the preceding necessary parts before the, the actual conventional medicine comes in. This is a fantastic question. A lot to unpack here, starting with Andrew Huberman himself, who I am also a huge fan of. The podcast is fantastic. And um, he, I grew up in Southern California and I'm an old surfer and skateboarder and he's a skateboarder too. I don't know if you knew that. Yep, um, yeah. And so, um, so like he has like, that's like the lesser known part of his kind of public persona. He's a Stanford educator, neuroscientist. He's got a great podcast. He skates. I love it. You know, that's yeah. uh, so very close to my heart. Um, so, and it's also fantastic that people like him are out there kind of shining light on the issue that you just described. So um, let me see where I can start here. There's a few different places to, to begin this conversation. So in naturopathic medicine, there's, there's two names for this phenomenon. Um, one is called the hierarchy of therapeutics, this therapeutic ladder that you talked about. Another is um, maybe a more common or colloquial term called the therapeutic order. That is to say the sequence of events that, that, a, that a doctor or a healthcare practitioner should approach a problem. Um, I like to sometimes describe this when I'm talking about this as um, with a metaphor. And the metaphor is about the fly in the kitchen, right? So if a fly in, a, in your kitchen is a problem, if you see that as a problem, there's like 
a bunch of different potential solutions to that problem, right? Um, one is to open up the door or the window, right? And see if you can like let the fly out. And that's that's like a that's a reasonably good solution. It, it, there's some risks to it. Maybe other flies would come in. Um, it might not be the easiest. You might have to like navigate the fly out, you know, out the door. Um, but it's a pretty good solution in terms of its like invasiveness, right? Um, it doesn't do a lot of damage to the fly or to the kitchen as it were. Right. And then up from there, we could go up to like the, the rolled up newspaper that you whack it with or the fly swatter. And then we could go up from there to, um, to like raid or some other toxic chemical that you spray in the air to try to kill the fly with. Uh, and then, you know, if that, none of those work, you could go up to, um, the flamethrower, right? Like blasting the fly with the flamethrower. And and the idea here is, this is a metaphor, right? Increasing levels of invasiveness, uh, of toxicity or of damage, right? The flamethrower will definitely get the job done, but it will do a lot of uh, collateral damage in the process, right? And so here we are in a healthcare system where we pull out the freaking flamethrower like right away, you know, many, many times. And that flamethrower can be a surgery. It can be a medication. It's just a higher order. It's not that the flamethrower, you know, the bigger level interventions, the big guns, so to speak, are inappropriate. It's just that they're inappropriate when they are used before these uh, safer, more gentle, more environmentally friendly options. And um, so that's the... So I guess in, in one sense, I'm right on the same page with you. I think the question that you asked is like, how did we get here? You sure. know, like, how did yeah. this, how did this happen? Like, what, you know, and um, there's a long history there. I mean, you know, there was a time not that long ago when all medicine was natural medicine, right? Like antibiotics only came in to widespread use in the 1940s, mid 1940s. So we're not talking, you know, this, this, this better living through chemistry, modern surgical techniques. These are all new. And I think that the way we got here to sum it up briefly is that in America, we are in, in healthcare and in other industries are fascinated, almost seduced by the new. Um, and so when new drugs, new surgical procedures, new stuff comes out, we just get really excited. And very often we will just then dump or get rid of or forget about all the stuff that was old and and you there's another example of this my kids are starting to collect vinyl records right so in music in in america right you had like you know vinyl records and eight track tapes then cassette tapes then cd's and now solid state and streaming and like with each new uh technology out goes the old one right and then now we're starting to see vinyl records come back in the same way that we're starting to see natural medicine come back. And so I think it's just the seduction of the new, the sexy, the high tech, you know, people love that. And then of course, all of that is bolstered by, and I don't want to do any big Western medicine bashing here, but all of it's bolstered by an industry that's worth trillions of dollars that's incentivized to prescribe the drugs, to do the surgeries and all that sort of stuff. So that that's, um, yeah, that was a roundabout way of getting there. That's, that's what I think is going on there. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think um, most people and, you know, probably myself included when I first sort of started to to dig into health, um, will just say, well, it's it's only it's entirely financial and there's really no gain from conventional medicine, which I found to be totally false. Um, so I do think that, yeah, at a certain point, if, if things don't work, you know, I'm very glad that we have things like antibiotics and surgeries. I mean, I if I if I get into a car accident, I'm not going to go to I apologize. I'm not going to go to natural. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not <laughs> right, going right. to go get ashwagandha. So yeah. well, um, your neck still hurts six months after the car accident. That's a different story. There but, you go. You know, right. Yeah. 
there you go can i tell yeah. you a story can i tell you a story real quick sure yeah so this is this is i guess what you might call an origin story um so like like we said in my cringy bio in the beginning um i went to ucla as an undergrad and and um i was one of those kids that just always wanted to be a doctor right that was like my my thing always knew that um but because my father was training medical residents at ucla at the time uh, i had kind of like I don't know, backstage access to a lot of doctors at UCLA back, back in the day. And they were all telling me, this is like more than 25 years ago now, um, that being a doctor basically ain't what it used to be, right? There's all these new pressures from insurance companies and whatnot. And they were strongly discouraging me away from a career in medicine. So I um, kind of took that to heart at that time in my end, uh, last year of college there and decided to go travel the world instead of um, go to medical school because I kind of wanted to just sort of see what, what else was out there. Um, and on that trip, which was backpacking and sleeping on beaches and hitchhiking and, you know, that kind of thing, I did it for a year. Um, I was on an airplane heading in towards Europe at one point, and I had developed an infection on the back of my heel from a, you know, my hygiene wasn't good at the time. I wasn't taking lots of showers. Anyway, this blister turned into cellulitis, which you probably know what that is. It's a, it's a severe, um, like limb or even life-threatening infection, right? So climbing up my leg, it's really bad. I got a fever. My leg is hurting terribly. It's a bad situation. And I land in Switzerland, which is where I was headed. Um, I called back home. I was able to negotiate getting a prescription for antibiotics called in to a pharmacy in Switzerland, which I hobbled my way there. And when I got into that pharmacy, I picked up my prescription. It was for Keflex, uh, cephalosporin antibiotic, which, by the way, cured the infection. So that's great. Um, it took a few days, but it got better. Um, and but in that Swiss pharmacy, remember, I'm I'm coming from Southern California. There's all this stuff, right? Herbs, homeopathic medicines, like all this natural medicine stuff that I, in the pharmacy, right? Because in Europe, in contrast to in America. They keep the eight tracks and the vinyl records on the shelf, right? They were still into it. It still works. German doctors, Swiss doctors, Italian doctors routinely prescribe herbal and natural vitamins, minerals, and what whatnot first. So I get to this pharmacy, I pick up my antibiotics, but I'm also exposed to this whole new world. And that world became so fascinating to me at the time. You know, I knew nothing of it. And it became, well, here I am 25 years later, still equally passionate, maybe even more about this. And uh, so it's it's interesting what you say. The reason why you reminded me to tell that story is that I'm a naturopathic doctor, but I got my start in this field on a day where I needed antibiotics, right? So like, that's like, it's like a weird irony, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the cellulitis and the necessity for the life-saving treatments within Western medicine are what brought me into this pharmacy that exposed me to this thing that we now call natural or alternative or complementary or integrative or functional medicine. It had so many different names over the years. I'm not sure which one I prefer, but anyway, that's my origin story. And it's exactly in line with, uh, with what you're talking about here. Yeah. It's interesting. Your, your origin story is sort of uh, starting on that uh, in the middle of that bridge between the sort of alternative medicine and the conventional medicine, like we talked about. So you already began yeah. with the, okay, I know conventional medicine is necessary and useful. It like saved me from maybe having to get this thing amputated or something right. at the right. extreme, but also I got exposed to all these other alternative things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that my career path has brought me to that bridge and um, my job there. I think when I 
and maybe this is still true. I think that I'm like kind of like in the water in between those two lands. Like the bridge isn't completely built yet. You know, that's the whole idea, right? The bridge between alternative medicine land or natural medicine land and conventional or mainstream medicine land are still quite far apart from each other. There's a lot of dogma, a lot of strong opinions on both sides, right? You mm -hmm. have Western doctors who think all natural medicine is quackery. And then you have alternative medicine people who think that all Western medicine is bad. I think neither of those are true. Um, and that is the bridge that I think is, um, well, has defined my career really. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's go back actually to something you said earlier about, um, you know, pulling out the flamethrower before it's actually necessary in terms sure. of, um, because I know um, more recently on your Instagram, you're, you're talking about more joint pain and chronic pain and things like that. I actually watched several of your, uh, of your lives. And actually I've, I've had really bad, like shoulder pain for a while and mm. some stretches that you, you showed actually helped a lot. So thank you for that. Great. First of all. Um, yeah. but, but second of all, um, when you talk about things like unnecessary, uh, flamethrowers, which, you know, this, the direct sort of correlation to that would be unnecessary, like surgeries or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, how, how common is that? How, you know, how common is it to, to have a surgery that is, that probably didn't need to happen? It's disturbingly common. Um, the, the idea of an unnecessary or inappropriate surgery, if you, if you think about this, the way that, um, malpractice lawyers think about it, um, unnecessary surgery should be a so-called never event, right? It should never happen, right? You should never, it should never happen. <laughs> quite frankly, right? But mm -hmm. it does, and it happens disturbingly frequently. Um, and I know this gets everybody really riled up because there's lots of people who've had surgeries that have done wonderful things. And mm -hmm. I am so happy for them that they've had that, you know, it's surgery can be a wonderful thing. That doesn't mean that all surgeries were appropriate or all surgeries are wonderful, right? Sure. Um, so it, it, I guess the answer to your question depends on the, on the surgery itself or the intervention. Um, let's just take uh, arthroscopic knee surgery as an example. Uh, one of the most common surgeries performed in the United States. Um, there are, and I'm, it's, 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 I pause because the numbers are staggering. There's hundreds of thousands of those procedures that are now considered inappropriate um, that are performed every year, hundreds of thousands per year. And the reason for that is, uh, and there's been studies, this isn't an alternative medicine fact, right? This is just published in conventional medical journals. Uh, surgical journals have been talking about unnecessary and inappropriate surgery for decades. Um, mm -hmm. And in, in, but the problem persists and there's many, many articles like that, that, that are, that are, that have demonstrated this. Let me give you a classic example. So there's been a few papers about this on arthroscopic surgery of the knee. So very common people have meniscus tears, not the acute kind that you got skiing or playing football, but the kind that like developed over time, right? The, so mm -hmm. a, a chronic degenerative meniscus tear, someone has knee pain, they go to a doctor, they, you know, maybe take some medicine, still hurts. They get an MRI and it shows that there's a meniscus tear and everybody gets excited. It's like, oh, wow, we have the diagnosis now. Um, and uh, it's the meniscus tear that hurts. Um, you have knee pain, you have a meniscus tear. Those two things must be related to each other. So let's go in there and let's cut out that little torn section. Let's file things down, clean things up a bit, you know? Um, and that's the type of surgery that I'm talking about. It's performed amazingly frequently in orthopedic offices all across the US. The problem is that the meniscus tear is often not the source of the pain. And there's been a number of intervention studies where they take, it's kind of a crazy thing. I call it fake surgery when I talk about it. So they take two groups of people who have meniscus tears and they put one group through regular arthroscopic surgery. They just do what they usually do. 
That's the control group. And then the other group is led to believe that they had surgery. It's a placebo surgery, a sham surgery, it's mm -hmm. called in the research, where the person is anesthetized. You know, they put a little blind up so they can't see what's going on. They hear some instruments tinkering around, you know, surgeons talking, doing stuff, using machines. Uh, and the surgeons make two little nicks uh, or three little nicks in their skin uh, and then do nothing else. They're just led to believe that they had surgery. And then they look at these two groups of people and their outcomes at different intervals along after the the, the intervention. And it turns out that both groups do equally well, right? The surgery, the real surgery doesn't work any better than the fake surgery, which never really happened. It's shocking, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like this surgery doesn't work. It doesn't work better than no surgery. Um, now, of course, thinking you got surgery is a pretty strong placebo effect, right? Like believing right. that something like that was done might make, might convince you. But if we could convince someone to believe that something strong happened, something powerful happened, then we could should hopefully be able to do that without faking a <laughs> surgery on them. Yeah. Um, and this has been repeated in other joints and other, uh, other body parts. And so I think that, yeah, so th there, there's your answer, you know, many of these procedures, and I, I got to qualify this here for a minute. Like, there, there's the, the numbers depending on the surgery are as high as uh, I would say average, depending on the different surgeries, 10% gynecological surgeries uh, in women are even much higher than that. Inappropriate or unnecessary ones um, can be even much higher than 10%. But even if it's 10%, right. That means out of every hundred surgeries, 10 of them were unnecessary or inappropriate. That's a lot um, still. That's a lot. That's yeah. very concerning. That's very yeah. expensive. And the numbers in some cases may be significantly even higher than that. So it's, it's, it's worrisome. And that, but that also means that 90% of them were appropriate and maybe really useful. So like, it's okay. You can have an inappropriate surgery that gets people excited about the, 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 the problem that that is. And you can also have surgeries that are perfectly appropriate as well. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a subject I talk a lot about and it's very concerning. It's a, it's a problem we need to fix. Do you ever, I know you talked about um, specifically with the meniscus tear being sort of like, that doesn't just happen, you know, from an accident on all at once, but it's sort of more degenerative. Uh, I was wondering if you work with more of like athletes where you do see something that happens more immediately and what is sort of their uh, the rate at which they get unnecessary surgeries, because I've had a lot of friends, I was an athlete for like over 10 years, and I had quite a few friends who actually did get surgeries. And so mm -hmm. I, I never knew, well, I always assumed that it was necessary, but I, I never knew. So yeah, it's an easy thing to assume, right? Like, it's like, yeah. it seems like, oh, wow, I, I saw something that was torn, it needs to be stitched back together, or something that was fractured, it need to be pinned. Um, and so usually these unnecessary surgeries, and I'm I'm casting a big umbrella over all of this right now. But usually these unnecessary surgeries are most mostly in reference to the um, to the chronic degenerative ones that are usually happening in older people for problems that have accumulated over time. So like surgeries of the neck for degenerative disc disease there, surgeries in the lumbar spine are notorious. These are low back surgeries that happen so frequently where they're removing discs, that's a discectomy, and then a fusion or a laminectomy in the lumbar mm -hmm. spine. Um, and then these arthroscopic surgeries, which happen on shoulders, which happen on knees, which happen on uh, hips too. Um, and then even full-blown joint replacements is another one that falls into that category. And then, like I said, some of the others like heart stents are uh, many of those, which also seem like they should work, don't work any better than regular medical or pharmaceutical therapy mm -hmm. uh, and gynecologic procedures. On the acute side, like for the athletes, like your friends, or maybe even yourself, if we're talking about something like, let's say an ACL rupture, right? Like that's a 
common injury, football players, athletes, tear your ACL. If you have a complete tear of your ACL, let me be clear, that is not going to heal on its own um, without an intervention, you know, mm -hmm. and that intervention is going to be surgical. And there's a few options of what you want to, how you want to fix it, what you want to use for the new ACL. Um, it's also, it's okay to not have an ACL that's intact, but if you don't have an intact ACL, you're not going to play soccer very well anymore, right? Your knee is going to be unstable. So we have patient selection. If someone has a torn ACL and they don't really want to ski or play soccer and all they want to do is walk across the room, that's a different situation than someone who wants to get back on the slopes or get back out on the field. So, you know, a lot of the heavy, serious athletic injuries, fractures, complete ruptures of tendons and things like that do require surgical intervention. And those are the kind of interventions that we should be grateful and uh, and proud to have access to you know right yeah no that makes a lot of sense there there was actually something related to this that i wanted to bring up that i saw on uh, an instagram page called stop chasing pain i forgot what uh his, his name is um but i believe he's also he's a, a naturopathic doctor or, or physical therapist something like that but he mentioned yeah. a few studies where uh there's actually not a direct correlation between if you have a structural abnormality and whether actually you have pain or not, I, I believe the the actual uh, example he gave was a herniated disc. So you could see that you have one, but maybe some people were just totally fine walking around and other people were like in excruciating pain. So so what is that? Like, what is that about? Why why do some people get that pain when you, you know, you're supposed to, you're quote unquote, supposed to have the pain and, and some don't? I love this guy. You know, this guy speaking my language that you're talking about yeah. here on Instagram. Um, yeah. So he's, he's right. A hundred percent. Right. Um, so, you know, we can, let's, let's take the example of lumbar, lumbar discs. So they're those spongy elastic discs in between your adjacent vertebrae. And um, a lot of people have bulging or herniated discs. You know, they're supposed to occupy a very distinct space. They're supposed to anatomically. Um, and then sometimes the outer edge of that disc bulges out, right? Beyond its con its normal confines, its normal area. Um, and you can see this pretty readily on an MRI, uh, which is what's usually done to assess these. So here's what happens. You have a person who has pain, and they do some physical therapy. They do this, they do that. It doesn't work. They wind up getting an MRI and they find lo and behold, a disc herniation, you know, it's bulging out here. Or it's bulging out there. And immediately what happens in the minds of radiologists and doctors and in patients is that since the person has pain and they have a disc herniation, which is considered an abnormality, uh, those two things must be related, right? It's, it's, it's attribution error really it's, but it's, it's a sensible thing. It's like, Oh, my back hurts. I have a disc herniation. They must be related to each other, right? Mm -hmm. Obvious, makes sense. Well, here's the problem with that. The problem is that we've done MRIs for many, many years now, many of them on people who do not have back pain, okay? People who do not, they're asymptomatic people. And there's been many, many, many MRIs done on people who do not have back pain. Maybe they got MRIs for other reasons, or maybe they were part of a test research group. Anyway, it turns out that in asymptomatic people, people who do not have back pain, lumbar disc herniations are extremely common. In fact, the, if you want to look at the percentages, it goes by decade of life. So in the 40s, 40-year-old 40 to 50-year-old people, about 40% of those people with no back pain have disc herniations. In the 50s, 50%. In the 60s, 60%. 
you know, and so on. So 75 year old person without back pain, there's a 70% chance that they're going to have a lumbar disc herniation on their MRI and they don't have any pain. So as soon as that 70 year old person has pain or the, mm-hmm. whoever, whatever age we immediately attribute it, but often it's just simply not true. There's other factors that are leading to that pain. And I would also argue that we also see this phenomenon every day and nobody ever asked their doctor this, like, if you have a lumbar disc herniation, almost everyone who has one of those who believes that it's the cause of their back pain will have good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. They'll say, yeah, my back feels fine when I'm walking. My back feels fine when I'm on vacation, but it hurts when I'm at work or it hurts when I'm here. And, the, you know, and, you know, if they have a disc herniation and the disc herniation is cause of the pain, why does it hurt at work, but not on the weekend? Why do you have good days and bad days? Do you think the disc herniation is going in and going out, going in and going out? No, the disc herniation is always there. There's other drivers that are making that disc herniation or whatever other problems level up and manifest itself as pain. But the disc herniation by itself is a total misattribution in many, many cases. So what are these other factors that are contributing to it? I know I've heard you talk about uh, several of them, like uh, maybe systemic and acute inflammation, maybe muscle tension. Um, You had mentioned a while ago, maybe uh, leaky gut may contribute to something uh, that worsens this. Could you sort of, where do we begin talking about all the other factors? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you have such a great like line of inquiry, right? I, 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 I like the way your brain works and the way it, it kind of like leads from one, one question to another. Cause you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, so, I mean, that's the obvious question. Like, Oh, this guy's saying that my disc herniation isn't what hurts. Well then what does, <laughs> right? Like, right. Um, yeah. so like the, and I'm not saying that the disc herniation is not at all involved. It may well be, it's a structural vulnerability in the same way that we all have vulnerabilities in other body areas as well, right. In in physiologic systems, but it by itself is not the sole cause of the pain. So what can take a person who has a vulnerable low back or a vulnerable knee and turn them into a pain, a person in pain. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned two of, I think the big three, uh, the first one is what is excessive inflammation, not just inflammation by itself, because inflammation is a necessary biological process. We can talk more about that, but yep. inflammation that's in excess of what it should be given the stimulus, right? So like, you know, you get a mosquito bite, a little inflammatory, you know, wheel and flare reaction on your skin is normal, but an excessive blown up, you know, hugely inflamed thing, that's excessive inflammation and excessive inflammation is extremely common um, in, in the standard American kind of populace because of dietary and lifestyle reasons, including um, problems in the health of the GI tract. So you mentioned leaky gut. So we could get into in more detail, the causes of, of which there are many of excessive inflammation, inflammation beyond that, which uh, should be there based on the stimulus. So that's cause number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and number two is uh, muscular tension. You mentioned that as well. So muscular tension is really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a protective response. So when your body perceives a vulnerability, like a disc herniation, for example, or like, let's say something more extreme, like a dislocated shoulder or a fracture, right? Um, what, what, what our body does is it, it, it seeks to protect that area from further injury. So if you've ever encountered somebody with a dislocated shoulder or a bad fracture of a big bone, the muscles all around that thing will spasm up 
really, really tight to lock it down. Almost like a, almost like a natural splint, you know, like we put casts on fractures or splints and braces on things. Your body does that naturally with muscle tension. And, and that's an attempt to stabilize, prevent further injury in an area that's vulnerable. Um, so that's, and, and, and when that happens at the site of one of these chronic vulnerabilities, meniscus tear, disc herniation, something like that, it adds pressure, it adds tension, it restricts more blood flow to the area and increases the risk of, of, of developing pain in that area. Um, and there's a number of different causes for excessive muscle tension. There's nutrient mm -hmm. deficiencies, magnesium comes to mind. So many people are magnesium deficient. That increases the likelihood you're going to have more muscle tension than you should or longer lasting muscle tension than you should. Right. Another big problem is just weakness. People are too weak. They, they sit too much. Their heads are forward because of the screens. And so relatively speaking, like the biomechanics of that, some muscles are overly strong. Some muscles are overly weak. And mm -hmm. those weak ones tend to spasm for the same reason to put stability in an area that's otherwise unstable. So yeah. muscle tension is number two. Remember inflammation was number one. And then three, which is very common, especially in the, in the chronic degenerative things that have been going on for months or years is, is fibrosis, which is, which is um, scar tissue, microscopic or even macroscopic scar tissue formation, the development of scars, which don't have, and that's in like in within muscle, it's within all of the soft tissue structures in and around a joint. And when those get, it's like gristle, you know, like, like a, like a gristly effect, like, like the difference between a chewy or tough piece of meat and a tender uh, you know, a tender, soft mm -hmm. piece, right? Um, and that gristle also restricts blood flow, restricts range of motion, you know, can compress or irritate nerves in the area um, and exacerbate or add a level of pain to a disc herniation that by itself, without those three things, might not, might not actually hurt. So those are the biggies, inflammation, muscle tension, and fibrosis. In terms of the fibrosis, um, you mentioned like the gristly sort of um, sensation. And I, I recently started like working with fascia. And so mm -hmm. for me, I know that I have a lot of places of, of tension. And when I start to work on a place, it, it feels like like gravel. It feels like it's like grainy. Is, is that what you're talking about? Is it related to the fascia? Is it in the muscle or both? Yep. It can be in both. You're, it's yeah. absolutely what I'm talking about. Um, and the fascia is, a, is, a, is such an interesting thing to explore and, uh, and, to, and to, to work on and to treat. You know, I always... One of the things about fascia, I remember that always stuck with me um, doing some training on uh, uh, myofascial release techniques, myo muscle fascia. So that's all wrapped up together and the fascia wraps everything, right? It compartmentalizes all of our muscles and whatnot. And I remember some instructor many, many years ago talking about fascia as almost like a, almost like a suit. Like you can imagine like a tight cat suit mm. that you're wearing. And if you were to take like, like I have a little pencil right here. I would just remember this image of like the eraser of a pencil and just stick it in that fascial suit. It would probably even work on my shirt right here and start to twist it. It would just twist the whole thing. And like the, the, the implications of that, it would like hurt here, but you can see it's pulling here. It's pulling here. Like if you're wearing a tight rubber yeah. suit like a fascia suit and you twist in one spot um it's gonna hurt there but it's gonna have an effect basically everywhere right and so depending on where that injury may have been or where that chronic inflammatory response was maybe you had a surgery maybe you had an injury maybe you had whatever it is that's locking up this one area and causing this fascial twist there you can see how that like that would you know, as I start to twist the shirt up, it spirals out and it's going to pull this shoulder down. It's going to pull this shoulder up. It's going to tweak the hips out. Mm -hmm. And so, yep. yeah, that, and that's, that's so 
fibrosis is what I'm talking about. That's that, that's that gristle that can happen in the fascia. Um, it can also happen and develop anywhere at the site of chronic muscle tension, uh, chronic, uh, ongoing trauma or injury, like repetitive strain, um, or at the site of a previous acute injury, surgical trauma, whatever, whatever the case may be. And it's a, it's a, um, yeah, it's very common. And by the way, and this is an important thing, you can't see any of that stuff on an MRI. You don't, you, you, you don't see it. It's not there. You know, like you, you look and you go, oh, there's a disc herniation, but no one ever says, oh, there's inflammation or there's muscle tension or there's fibrosis because those things don't show up on the MRI. Right. So you can't see it. And that's why it gets missed. Yeah. In terms of the, the inflammation specifically are, how would you, how would you um, like test for that? Are you looking for like C-reactive protein or like other inflammatory markers? Like what do you specifically look for to, to see whether somebody is high, highly in inflamed? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and there's lots of different ways to go about it. Right. So the, the yeah. first is the obvious, you know, in, in school, we learned that inflammation is typified. There's this little Latin poem, like a four little four word Latin poetry. Um, and that describes what inflammation is from a medical, from a medical perspective. And that is, I'll give you the Latin poetry. If I can remember here, dolor, which means pain, rubor, which means redness, mm -hmm. tumor, which means swelling, and calor, which means heat, right? Yeah. You can hear the you can hear the Spanish in there too, because they're all yeah. the same words in Spanish, right? Dolor, yeah, yeah. rubor, right? So redness, swelling, heat, and pain. That's inflammation. So yeah. if you see all those things, you don't need any kind of CRP or sed rate or fancy tests. It's just that's it. Like it's obvious, you know, that it's there. And you know, one a person with clinical experience can determine whether or not there's, you know, it seems excessive based on whatever the stimulus or the trauma was. Um, that's the basic clinical diagnosis. Two is the clinical history, which we we, we get very excited about laboratory testing for interleukin six and for C-reactive protein and on and on all these different fancy lab tests. But there's also just like, hey, talk to the patient, ask them some stuff, you know. And um, there's some really important questions like, what do you eat? right? Which can determine whether or not they might have an excessive inflammatory response. If their diet's loaded with pro-inflammatory things and devoid of anti-inflammatory things, we can talk more specifically about that. Then that's a good, per that's a good bet that that person's going to have more inflammation, no matter what the stimulus, right? Like, you know, you go and smash your toe against the, the corner of the coffee table. It's going to swell. It's going to inflame. That's supposed to, it's necessary, but if you take good care of yourself, if you do all the things that natural medicine doctors talk about doing to live an anti-inflammatory lifestyle and eat an anti-inflammatory diet, that same stimulus, smashing the toe against the coffee table and stubbing your toe will create less inflammation, a normal, healthy amount to get you through the recovery period than it would if you were living a pro-inflammatory lifestyle and eating a pro-inflammatory diet. So clinical history is really important. The obvious clinical examination is important. And then there's this whole world of laboratory tests that you can look for. You mentioned CRP. You, uh, you didn't mention uh, ESR, which is the erythrocyte red blood cell sedimentation rates, another test. And then there's a whole bunch of inflammatory cytokines that we can look at, um, uh, essential fatty acid ratios and things that we can do if we're really trying to dial in um, the specifics of the biochemistry of a per particular person's inflammatory response. So yeah, there's a lot there. That, that's fascinating. Um, I let, let's talk a little bit deeper about the um, about the diet and what people could do to sort of help lower their inflammation so that because it sounds like uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a lower level of baseline inflammation, and you do have an acute injury, 
it, you're probably it's not probably not going to be as bad for you as if you had higher level of baseline inflammation. Is that right? Yeah, I'd say that's right. I mean, I think the the yes, the inflammation is a biological process, right? And we'll get to the dietary piece here, but just I think to frame it, it's it's absolutely necessary. You know, we we need inflammation, and it's it's interesting too that inflammation is named after fire, inflamo, right? Like mm -hmm. inflamo means to set ablaze, and that that's what it's it's named after fire. And in so many ways, inflammation and fire are are related to each other. It, like think of fire, right? We we need it, or we depend on it, right? For cooking, for heating, you know, for it, it, we we fire is like a fundamental part of what's created the human civilization that we have, right? Um, and it's also like one of the most destructive forces on the planet. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah. it's like, we love candlelit dinners and like singing songs with our guitar by the campfire, but like, we don't love California wildfires. Cause that's like one of the worst things ever. Right. So it's like the same thing fire, but an inflammation is the same like that. Right. It is a necessary thing that we absolutely depend on for survival, for healing, for repair, for recovery. But when it, escapes you know when the candle candles light the curtains on fire it becomes one of the most destructive forces in our body and it is unquestionably at the root of virtually every chronic disease that there is every one you know has been has been associated with excessive inflammation not just inflammation but like more than you should have right so that that's the point there and so what are the things that lead people to having a risk of having a greater than normal inflammatory response or higher than the normal baseline levels of inflammation. I mean, the diet is where it all starts, right? And it, it's mostly centered, um, not, not completely, but mostly centered on the balance of essential fatty acids, the balance of these long chain omega-3 versus omega-6 uh, type of fatty acids that are, that we eat, and that are in our cells, they form our cell membranes. And when our cell membranes are made of the right kinds of fats, the kinds that are found, you know, the long chain omega-3 variety, um, our cells do a better job of having an appropriate inflammatory response. That's the main dietary thing. There Got it. Others. Got it. Yeah. I, I was going to ask you about that. Obviously I had um, Dr. Udo Rasmus on the podcast a little while ago, and he, mm. he's like the godfather of fats. He and is so indeed. We, we yeah. talked all about that omega-3s, yeah. omega-6s, um, and how yeah. really most people are not getting enough omega-3s and our ratio is just totally off. We're like maybe 20 to one in terms of six to three in, in some estimates. And usually it was like maybe around one to one, something like that. So yep. um, is there is there anything else? I mean, obviously looking at the baseline stuff, like not consuming too many processed foods and eating you know, foods in their whole form. Um, are you somebody that falls more into like the plant-based or the animal-based? I know you're a very non-dogmatic person from what I can tell, but where mm -hmm. do you sort of uh, see, see the, the sides of the spectrum in terms of inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, um, <laughs> there's, there's lots of ways to eat well. Um, and there's also lots of ways to eat badly, I suppose. And we, we, we as Americans seem to like love to explore them all right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, uh, in terms of, yeah, in terms of eating badly, I think it's very clear that, it's the ultra processed foods, right? The highly processed things that are made by large, you know, multinational corporations that are kind of like these food-like substances of many ingredients and, you know, all the stuff on the center aisles of the grocery store as compared to that stuff around the perimeter um, that are the problem, um, that are a fundamental problem. And those are the ones that Udo was talking about that like are loaded with the wrong types of fats, 
that have distorted that ratio. Um, if you stick to what I, I like to call it down to earth eating, right? Like just minimally processed foods that are just in the form that they were in when they came out of the earth, when they came out of the, the water, when they came off the farm or the field, um, then, then you're in much better shape. And then we can get more nuanced about that. You know, not all cows are fed or raised equally. Um, and so there's some distinction between like a grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised cow, which I think can be part of a healthy diet, no question about it. The essential mm -hmm. fatty acid ratios in that meat are very different than the essential fatty acid profile of a, uh, of a corn-fed cow uh, that's raised on a, you know, on a CAFO on a concentrate, concentrated animal feeding operation. Um, same as the conversation between wild caught versus, uh, versus farm raised fish, um, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, you stick to the perimeter of the grocery store, which is where the minimally processed foods that your grandmother or great grandmother would have recognized as foods and stay away from those ultra processed ones. That's well on your way towards an anti-inflammatory diet. Got it. Got it. So yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely agree that if you just cut out the ultra processed foods and you go eat, you know, things that you can identify in nature, then you're like 80, 90% of the way there. And then, you know, yeah. the rest of the stuff like, because um, even people get very caught up on like something being organic, which I do think, you know, obviously, if you can afford organic, great, but there's a lot of people who can't. And so oftentimes, they'll see influencers talk about how, you know, pesticides are going to kill you, they're going to give you cancer. And so they just stick with the ultra processed foods rather than getting produce because they're scared away from the produce. Whereas like, yeah. it's really uh, a good, better, best scenario and not like perfection. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and you, there's a lot of those sort of influencers have created this new problem that's called orthorexia. Where people are like, yeah. Where, where people just are freaking out. They don't know what to eat. And, you know, if you, I, I don't think this is like hard data, but like, I remember looking at a paper once that was talking about like, so we can agree organic food is better. Like if you can afford and get access to organic strawberries, definitely do that. Right. Like yeah. that would be good. Uh, those are preferable for a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't eat strawberries if you at all, because like for every there's the, the, the stat statisticians have crunched the numbers. Like if you, if people just ate like one cup of berries, right. Per day compared to the zero cups of berries that they currently eat per day, it would save like, you know, some staggering number of lives, right? Like, let's yeah. just say for, for the sake of experiment, like, let's just say it's a hundred thousand people like, you know, wind up, you know, living longer, getting more years out of their life just because yeah. they added some fruit. If that fruit was conventional and it contained pesticides and stuff like that, there's like one or two of them that would actually die of a cancer, right? You know, like yeah. of something that was related to pesticides. Yeah. So like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like eat the strawberries, organic if possible. Um, you're better off eating the strawberries than eating like a strawberry flavored Pop-Tart. For sure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. No. And I mean, I, I was there and, and, you know, the reason why I now sort of fight back against that sort of culture of perfectionism is because I was there in terms of orthorexia. I was like so scared of eating anything that I, that wasn't quote unquote perfect that mm. I was just like obsessed about my food. I was like super anxious about every bite of every food. And that's like, that's no way to live. That's a, uh, you know, that's its own negative health effects is, is carrying that amount of chronic stress all the time. Yep. So yeah. It, and like yeah. pizza is amazing, right? Pizza, like pizza is amazing, you know, and like <laughs> it's, it's, it, and like you, if you can tolerate it and I want to talk about the GI tract for a second here, yeah. cause we've kind of glossed over that, but like, you know, stick to good quality stuff. And like, the, the, I think the road towards health, right? Like it, it, it involves balance. Right. And, and so like the, I've, I've 
I've been in doing this for a long time. And the people that like obsess about every little calorie and like, whether it was organic or regenerative or this or grass fed, whatever the conversation is, you know, they're, they're not healthy, right. They're, they're imbalanced and, and um, yeah. they may, you know, and, and yeah, so I don't, I don't support that. Right. Like I do support the overall kind of like, yeah, th this good, better, best idea that you describe. And I think that's a much, much healthier way to approach it. Yeah. So in terms of, and I know we talked about, you know, the uh, omega-3, omega-6s, and now we've talked about, um, you know, a little bit about pesticides. What other things would you say could uh, sort of target these three things that you talked about, whether it be uh, nutritionally or whether it be, you know, another type of intervention in terms of, you know, reducing the systemic inflammation, in terms of uh, mitigating the muscle tension, which I know you discussed magnesium, and then in terms of the scar tissue? Yeah. So, I mean, one area that's, that's broad, and then we can kind of narrow in a little bit yeah. um, that, that I think deserves attention, especially in inflammation, but in all these areas is, is the health of the GI tract, especially the, the, the internal membranes of the GI tract, um, the absorptive surface that is, and then also the health of the GI microbiome. It's a discussion for another day, mm -hmm. but we now live in a world with a lot of toxins, with overuse of antibiotics in both humans and in, uh, and in, uh, livestock, which is really where the antibiotic problem exists. Um, and so we have these microbiomes that eat that population of bacteria that inhabit our GI tracts that are imbalanced, right? That like, there's too many of the not so good guys, there's not enough of the good guys. And that creates this microbial imbalance, which has a, a massive influence over our health more broadly, mm -hmm. um, including our intestinal permeability. So now all of a sudden, like the health of your GI tract is now, um, creating an, an increased intestinal permeability such that foods that you might eat that might be otherwise perfectly well tolerated now become inflammatory, right? You're, right. you're the, the, the wheat gluten or the whatever, you know, the, the, the lectin, these kinds of things are leaking through little, little pinholes in your GI tract, creating an immuno immunologic response because you're not supposed to get those foods into your bloodstream, mm -hmm. direct access that way, your immune system reacts. Now you've got a chronic inflammatory response and here we go. The cycle continues, right? So yep. the health, the balance, the permeability of the GI tract is paramount, especially in people who have these chronic pain or chronic inflammatory conditions and GI symptoms. So that's something that I always look for is that, is that, that GI health piece. Got it. Got it. And what would you say are a few steps that people can take? Are you, um, do you like probiotics for that? Some specific types, um, some types of supplements maybe? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, th there's, there's, um, a lot to say there, but yes, like restoring the, the health of the ecosystem with probiotics or selectively, if we, if we identify or have reason to believe there's concerning microorganisms there, we can kill them. There's a, you know any number of different ways to do that herbal yeah. or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like trying to remove or reduce the populations of abnormal microbes, whether we tested for them or, or not, um, and trying to replant or reseed, you know, it's like a garden down there, right? So like yeah. pull the weeds, plant new seeds, nurture those seeds, um, and then enhance the efficiency of the digestion. Digestive enzymes are often have utility here um, to help people break down the food. So you're not you're breaking it down better, getting more of it yourself and yeah. leaving less leftovers for those microbes. Yeah. And then all the different things that one can do to help improve the integrity of the intestinal lining of that, of that barrier. And there's a whole bunch of herbal things, um, mucilaginous herbs and amino acids that can be helpful in improving intestinal barrier integrity. Uh, and it's really, uh, for, for many people, a very important part of controlling 
that um, excessive inflammatory response, especially in those people who like really eat well, you know, they're doing well, they're doing all the right things, but they're still getting this chronic inflammatory reaction. Look at the gut. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's fascinating. And I know we could talk about that for a whole other hour and we don't have that much more time left. Um, and maybe, I mean, if you're, if you're, up, if you're up for it, I would love to have you back and actually talk a little bit more about each of these things in depth um, in terms of more action steps. And then the, any other, I mean, you're, you're really like an encyclopedia. I've looked over your Instagram and you know, like a lot about a lot. So yeah. Jack yeah. of all trades. Yes. It, 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 it's, it's, it's funny, right? Like a little tangent here. A lot of people yeah. like to plant their flag. Like I'm a GI person. I'm a prostate person. I only do, you know, I work on the left eye, you know, like that, that, that and medical <laughs> subspecialization is that way. Right. We yeah. have specialties, specialties, specialties. And, you know, I can refer a person to a thumb doctor now, right. It used to be upper extremity and it was like, you know, hand. And now there's thumb doctors, which is amazing. If you have a really bad thumb problem, okay. I, yeah. that that's always kind of like, I love that, but not for me. Right. For me, I like to take care of the whole person, right? And and that's the body and all the different parts of it and um and the mind and the spirit. Yeah. There's there's so much to go there. Yeah. So I appreciate that. And um yeah, I've been at this for a while. So there's um yeah, we can we can continue the conversation in other body areas uh or 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 non-physical areas as as well too. So um sure. Great, great. Um so before we leave here, where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, thank you for that opportunity. So yeah, I'm I'm out there. Like you've mentioned my Instagram. Um, that's a place where I post this sort of content, often little excerpts from podcasts like this, which I'm sure will wind up there. Um, and um, and just really just trying to educate people. So that's um at DRJ. Oh my goodness. Well, you'll have to put it in the link notes. I'll put it in the show notes. No worries. Yeah, put it yeah. in the show notes. I have all yeah. these different handles. I can't keep track of them all. I'm, I've been making some TikToks lately as well. And then the company, you know, I have a clinic here in Connecticut. I'm not uh, accepting new patients at this point. My kind of career has gotten to the point where I can't, uh, I can't manage the influx of potential new patients, but there's a bunch of doctors at my clinic, which is called whole health here in Connecticut uh, that do see patients and, and, uh, and accept new patients. And then I own a company that's called up wellness um, and upwellness.com is the website for that company. And we make a bunch of different products that I formulate that address different body areas, um, including this musculoskeletal pain uh, category, including the digestive health category and upwellness.com is the place where people can see uh, all of the, the, the output um, of, of, of my work in the form of the nutritional supplements that we make there. Great. And I'll include links to all of those. Uh, thank you so much for your time. This was very informative. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. You're a great uh, interviewer. You have a lot of good questions and clearly uh, have your head on straight when it comes to this stuff. I really like the perspective that you bring to it. So it's great. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, How Modern Medicine, the Media, and the Mundane Have Destroyed Our Health and How to Move Back Towards Optimal Health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.